We started out this teaching a, a few weeks back, actually, um, called The Portrait, and then we stopped for a little bit in early September so that we could study this series, I Won't Back Down. But now we're jumping back into The Portrait, which is a study of the book of John. So if you're brand new to New Hope and you're not sure where we're headed with this, what we've been doing is taking the New Testament book of John and going verse by verse through it, trying to understand this explanation that Jesus gave us of God. The entire study is based on one premise, this premise. What you personally believe about God determines what you do next in your life. Now, you can't possibly arrive at a conclusion about what you believe about God until you know how to view God because how you view God determines what you believe about God and what you believe about God determines what you do next. So we've got this study of the book of John because we understand that Jesus is explaining him. Early, many years ago, when I was in college and high school, I was majoring as an art student, thought that was going to be the area where I made my living. I fell in love with the work of the masters. One of my greatest paintings that I just love looking at is this one that was captured by Vasily Polonov in 1880, and it's of Jesus walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the most accurate paintings you're going to see capturing Jesus. The reason why is he's wearing traditional rabbi clothing. He's got a white turban on his head. It would have been very common clothing for a Jewish rabbi at that period of time. But regardless of the type of artwork we have available to us and what we can look at, we can only imagine what God is like. And so we're told in John chapter 1, verse 18, this is what it says, you'll see it on the screen, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, meaning Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, meaning right next to God the Father, sitting next to him, he has explained him. So we've got this portrait, a big blank canvas that John starts out with in chapter 1, and he begins covering this canvas with these brush strokes that Jesus gives us as he explains God. The word actually is exgekomai, and exgekomai, the word explain, exgekomai, literally means a calling out or a declaring, something that you would consider out loud. So that's what Jesus is doing. So in chapter 1, here's what we discovered. This is going to catch you up really quick to where we're at today. In chapter 1, Jesus is called the Word. And if you picked up the notes when you came in this morning, you're going to see that as the first point on there. Jesus is called the Word in John chapter 1, and he's also recognized as the Creator. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And we discover that this Word, capital W, brought everything into existence. He's the one that spoke it all into being. In chapter 2, we see that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Chapter 3, he's called the only begotten Son. Chapter 4, he's called the living water. Chapter 5, we discovered that God came to a swimming pool where a man had been paralyzed 43 years. He's laying by the pool, completely unable to move. And Jesus, as God, heals him. And the man gets up and begins to walk. And then in chapter 6, we saw that he's called the true bread from heaven. Those are just some of the titles, highlights. What John clearly wants us to understand is that everything in the Old Testament is pointing right to Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that God promised. Everything the Old Testament was looking forward to in prophecy, Jesus fulfilled it. And so we're left with a choice we must respond. You and I and the people 2,000 years ago who encountered these truths 
have to respond. You either have to receive it or reject it. It's the only two choices you're left with. There's no middle ground whatsoever. So Jesus made it very, very clear to the individuals who were walking with him. In chapter 6, we saw that that was a breaking point. Remember that? People abandoned Jesus. Jesus laid a very clear line in the ground and said who he was and what he expected of people. And we were told in chapter 6 that people by the hundreds walked away because they thought what he had to say was too hard. It was a large-scale departure. Now as we come into chapter 7, we see there is danger in the air. And it only escalates. As a matter of fact, chapter 6 and chapter 7 in our study of John is a hinge point. Up till now, people have tolerated Jesus. At chapter 7, you'll see the wanted posters have been hung on the wall with Jesus' picture on it because they're out to kill him. And chapter 7 ushers in a really violent section of Scripture. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning at John chapter 7 and verse 1. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along that way as well as the Bibles that are in the pew racks. John chapter 7, when it opens up, know this, it's six months before the crucifixion. Verse 1 says this, After these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. So after these things, it's talking about after chapter 6, obviously, but there's a span of time in between. Chapter 6 ends in April, which is the time of Passover. Chapter 7 picks up in October during the time of the Feast of Booths. What happened in the six months in between? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us, but John chapter 7 is just a leap forward in time. He doesn't give us any details. He wants us to know about the crucifixion and what's coming. And we're told that the Jews are constantly, daily, seeking to kill him. It's an ongoing action. So Jesus is not willing to walk in Judea, which is the southern part of Israel, because it's not God's plan. It's not his time yet. So we see in verse 2 this thing called the Feast of Booths. What is that? We also see it in Scripture called the Feast of Tabernacles. There were three major feasts in the Jewish calendar year. The most popular one was the Feast of Booths. And here's what it contained. You remember when the children of Israel left Egypt? Pharaoh let them go. Moses led them out into the wilderness. And they lived in the wilderness all those years of wanderings. During that period of time, they didn't have houses to live in. They had tents and what they called huts or booths. And so this Feast of Booths that we're learning about here is something specifically that God gave them to do to remember and never forget the way that he delivered them and provided for them. So this is like seven days of thanksgiving for them that occurs once a year. They're supposed to celebrate it all the time. Here, let me show you on the screen in Leviticus, there's a specific directive God gave them about how to build it. Leviticus 23.40. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. It goes on to explain that they're supposed to take all these branches and build a hut to literally move out of their house and move into for seven days so that they always remember how their ancestors lived. So remembering was a really big deal and still is with God. And during this feast, the people built these shelters and they celebrated from them. They took the week off from work. Go with me to verse 3. Therefore, his brothers said to him, 
leave here and go into Judea, meaning the southern part of Israel, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. You see, his brothers assumed he's going to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. It's compulsory. It's a mandatory event. Every Jewish male was expected to attend it. So his brothers are assuming he's going to show up there. But we get this little parenthetical statement at the end, and it's added on by John. You can put it in parentheses in your own Bible. For not even his brothers were believing in him. His own brothers, James, Judas, Simon, these are his half-brothers, biological brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph. And these half-brothers don't believe that he's really the king, that he's the son of God. And so they use this really cynical statement. If you do these things, show yourself. They say it in the same fashion in which the crowd said to Jesus, when he's on the cross, you might remember this, Jesus is on the cross and all the crowd is mocking him and they say, if you're really the Christ, then come down off the cross. It's the same phrase. If you do these things, they're mocking him. I don't know if they're embarrassed by his claims or what he says he is, but to sum up their words in a really short statement, it'd be like this, put up or shut up. They're challenging him to declare himself. So at very best, they're saying, if you're really determined to do this thing and declare yourself, then go on down to the Feast of Tabernacles and put yourself on display for everyone watching. It's not spoken in Jesus' best interest. As a matter of fact, the cynicism is just oozing from them. Go with me to verse 6. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Now, when when these groups would go to Jerusalem for this festival, they typically would travel in very large caravans. An entire village would empty out and head down to Jerusalem. Now, that would be a very public setting for Jesus to show up in. As a matter of fact, if you were here during chapter 6, you remember that the crowd was trying to force Jesus to be king of Israel. They were trying to exalt him and carry them on their shoulders to Jerusalem to make him king. So if Jesus steps back into a large crowd again, it's very likely this same crowd is going to try and charge him with being king. And Jesus is saying, my time's not yet here. I'm not going to go. My hour has not yet arrived. Well, what time has not yet arrived? What's he talking about? You know that God has everything ordained according to his sovereign plan about how things are going to work out? especially in the life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, God told us that he planned things from ancient times, from way, way back. Look with me up on the screen. 2 Kings 19.25, Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. So your God is a God of order, and he plans things out in succession. So that's why Jesus, as God, responds, My time's not yet here. I'm not going to do this. And then he says in response, The world hates me because, why? Because I testify of it. I want you to see the word that Jesus used. The word is martyrio, to give evidence, to bear record. What does Jesus do when he bears record, when he 
testifies to the truth. The counter of it is he's exposing sin. You either have black or white. There's no gray area. So Jesus, when he speaks of truth, when he gives evidence, he's exposing the sin of the world. And that's why the world responds with hatred towards him. And here's why I want you to take note of this. Because Jesus promised the same thing is true of those who name the name of Christ. That when you speak of truth, when you speak of God's word, when you testify to the truth of God's word, the world's going to recoil. Because it's very definitive about the line that Jesus laid down. Look with me up on the screen, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love its own. But because you do not belong to the world, but I chose you out of the world, for this reason, the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Go with me on to verse 9. Having said these things to him, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. I'm looking at that as a teenager. I'm studying that thinking, what's going on here? Because it looks like Jesus lied to them. Thinking, is there a contradiction here? Jesus' brothers depart for Jerusalem. They're going to the festival. They're doing what every Jewish male is supposed to do. They're going to go party. But Jesus says, I'm not going up there. Here's what he didn't do. He didn't go as his brothers challenged him to go. He didn't go on public display. We get that very last word there, as if in secret. Here's the word that's used. The word is cryptos. It means hidden. Jesus took the back roads, probably traveled at night. He went up in the middle of the feast and as opposed to the, at the beginning. He obviously didn't travel with his disciples. He went what we might call undercover. Understand this. This is the exact opposite of what his brothers wanted him to do. They said, make a big show of yourself. And he's going hidden, secretly, below the radar, we might say. Go with me to verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And if you don't mind circling or writing in your Bible, you could underline or circle the phrase, the Jews, because it occurs twice there. The Jews, whenever you see it repeated in the New Testament like that, is speaking of the authorities, the leadership of Israel. We're not talking about the population in general or the common people. These are the authorities who are on the outlook. They've got Jesus' wanted poster hanging around, and they're looking for him. That's why it says the Jews were seeking him at the feast. And do you notice that it said there was grumbling among the crowds? This word that's used, gangusmos, a mumbling, is not a complaining. As a matter of fact, this is what it is, a murmuring. Now, if you've ever stood outside perhaps the hallway of a, a in the hallway from a classroom, maybe at school, where a bunch of elementary children were in the classroom and maybe the teacher stepped out for a minute and she said to her class before she stepped out, now students, I'd like you to remain quiet and stay at your work. Now if you were out in the hallway, what you would hear is a low roar inside the room where the kids are talking soft enough where they think the teacher can't hear them. That's what's going on here. This low murmuring, a roar. 
So you're looking through the eyewitness of someone that was there. John's walking the streets of Jerusalem, and he hears in these corners these low conversations because we don't want to talk too loud about him because the authorities are out to get him. And nobody's going to talk openly about him. Besides that, they're not agreed on who he is. Some are saying he's a good man. Some are saying he's leading people astray. So there's confusion. So there's this murmuring roar rolling through Jerusalem. Go with me to verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus arrives halfway through, probably Wednesday, maybe Thursday, in the middle of the feast, and he blends in with the crowds, and then all of a sudden, he's in the temple. Now, the temple, mind you, the courtroom, the courtyard where they taught was huge. So he's probably off to one of the corners, just teaching a group of people that are gathered around him, and then somebody notices him. And they're not only noticing him and thinking this is a huge, courageous move that he's come into this setting, but they're shocked at his teaching. Why are they so shocked? They're hearing him say things that they've not heard before. So it says, how has this man become learned? They have to admit, he's good. He's really good. But they don't know what to do with this because they know that he's contrary. He's had no formal training in their schools of rabbinic study. He's never been to their seminaries. So they're saying, how has this man become learned? They can't understand how he can know so much about the Bible, but he's never studied it with them. Here's a clue. He wrote it, okay? That's why he knows so much about it. But that's what's confusing them. So here's this dichotomy. They're in awe of his teaching yet they want to kill him. You see the turmoil going on here? Go with me to verse 16. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. I love the fact that Jesus answered the question without it being asked of him. He's teaching. He's off to the side. But he hears this murmuring going on around the crowd, so he decides to answer a question that's not even asked of him, and he responds. Everything I've got, yeah, it didn't come from seminary school. It came from the one who sent me. So if you picked up the notes this morning when you came in, you've got this little thing I put on item number 12, which should be a gauge for you to help you determine when you sit in a church like this, whether or not you are sitting under true godly teaching or if you're sitting under false teaching. You need to use this the rest of your life because Jesus gave us three little steps there in verses 16 through 18. And I want to camp on that for just a minute because whether or not New Hope is your church, whether you go someplace else or you don't even have a church, when you make a decision about whose teaching you're going to sit under, you should go back to the source, to God's word, and see what did God say is important about how to determine whose teaching I sit under. So number one, the first thing you'll see in your notes I put in there, when Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, it belongs to him who sent me, you want to make sure that the person that's teaching you is one who's after God's heart. You'll recognize right away when you look at Jesus' words, they match up exactly with God's words. 
So Jesus is emphasizing himself here, but he's saying, you want someone who's teaching God's words. But the second point is, he says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. That's a person who's got a political agenda or is trying to develop their own personal following. Someone who's after building a crowd so that they can have the ego-driven rush. That's the person you want to avoid. And number three, he's saying, but he who is seeking the one after who sent him, that's the true one. That's the one who's communicating accurately what God has to say. That's who you listen to, the one who's teaching God's word. So whether you're at New Hope or some other church, you want to make sure that you're listening to someone who's speaking with integrity. His speech is righteous. And you can check me on this. And you should check Gary on this. And Michael, the things that are said from this platform, make sure that the things that we're saying match up with God's word. That's your responsibility. That's why Jesus says, if you're willing to do the work of God, carry it out and make sure that what's said matches up. So the implication of what Jesus just said there to that group is huge. Here's why. I want you to see on John chapter 12, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. So Jesus is saying, I'm speaking directly from God the Father, and if you're rejecting what I have to say, if you're rejecting my word, you're rejecting God. Go with me to verse 48 on the screen. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Why did he go to all this work to say that? Because of this. The rabbis and the scribes always drew their information from other rabbis and scribes and other rabbis and scribes. It went back generationally. They were big on oral tradition. And so the rabbis and scribes were teaching things that weren't necessarily matching up with God's word. So we see an example of that in Matthew 7. On the screen, verse 28, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, speaking of Jesus, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So that's why Jesus says in verse 17 in that little section we stopped on for a minute, if anyone is willing, meaning to do the hard work, he's going to know whether or not it's of God. So Jesus' challenge is really simple to you. It's really simple to our entire society that we live in. If anyone is willing to humble themselves and really do the hard work and search the scriptures, they're going to see right away. Jesus is the one. He and God are the same. There's a match there. And that challenge that he gave 2,000 years ago still stands today. No one can refute it. And it's promised in these verses that if we're consistent about doing this, God says, I will consistently show up for you. Look with me on the screen. Deuteronomy 4.29, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Now, those verses 16 through 18 kind of look like we're looking through cheesecloth. They're kind of foggy unless you know that background. And that's why Jesus says what he does next now in verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? You see, he's aware of their hatred. 
He's aware that they want to kill him, so he asks a rhetorical question. Hey, didn't Moses give you the law? Well, of course they're going to say, well, yes, we got the law from Moses. So what's his response to them? If Moses gave you the law, none of you carries it out. None of you fulfill the law. Why do you seek to kill me? You understand why he's saying that? The law of Moses is very specific about how they're supposed to carry out their actions. And Jesus is saying, none of you, all of humankind, even living in 2011, are not capable of fulfilling the things that are written in the Old Testament, of living according to the law. It's the unmistakable teaching of the New Testament. Everything hinges on what Jesus just said right there. You can't achieve holiness with God on your own. You can't work through the law of the Old Testament and do enough works to put yourself in a position where God will wink at your past sins and just accept you in. It's salvation by grace and grace alone. That's why Jesus is saying this. You don't fulfill the law. You're seeking to kill me. They're completely blind to the truth. So this response of the crowd that's watching this, because remember, they're vacationers. They've taken the week off from work, and they're not aware of this plot to kill Jesus. This is how they respond in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? They don't know what's going on. So Jesus calls their attention to the healing that he did of the guy at the swimming pool. He refers them back to the guy who was paralyzed. Go with me to verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? What was the big argument when Jesus healed the guy who was paralyzed at the swimming pool? Jesus heals a man who's been paralyzed for 43 years, and what did the leadership of Israel say to him? You can't heal him on the Sabbath? What are you doing? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath? And Jesus is referring them back to circumcision for this reason. If a male child was born and had to be circumcised, he was always circumcised on the eighth day according to law, and whether or not it was the Sabbath, they would carry out the circumcision, which was work. So Jesus is saying, you're willing to circumcise a child, and yet I'm going to make a man whole? I'm going to go completely heal him? And for that reason, you're seeking to kill me? So he's arguing from the lesser to the greater to help them get it in their heads. If you yourselves break the Sabbath, why are you being hypocritical in charging me? Go to verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Judge with righteous judgment is hung in my mind all week long because of the temptation of our society to make its determinations about God and who he is based on speculation. Jesus is saying do the hard work. Make your determination on the basis of substance, not speculation, not what your Aunt Irma told you, not what the guy in the stall at work next to you told you, not what your friends in the hallway at school said to you about who God is. Do the work. Make your judgment with righteous judgment. Do the work of looking at the Word. And if you do so, 
I promise you this, church, you will find out every time Jesus is exactly who he declared himself to be. That's why John's going to all this work, building the case, one, two, three, four, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven. This is who this guy really is. So this is where it begins to wrap up now, verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. The people don't really know what they're talking about. It's just a crowd speculating here. Now understand, when it says the people of Jerusalem there, we're talking about the citizens, the residents of Jerusalem. This is not the vacation crowd. These are the people who are aware of what's going on. So they're saying, this is the guy they're looking to kill. Look at the wanted posters. That's him. That's definitely him. So they're confused. What's he doing here? But they're saying it in their low, hushed tones. Have the leaders of Israel really decided that this is the Messiah? Have they changed their minds? Have they come to that conclusion? Some are so surprised that they begin to voice the unthinkable. Is he really the Messiah? It leaves them wondering. But then they say, no one knows where he's from, but we, we know where this man's from. He's from Nazareth. And that's why Jesus is about to yell, and he yells loud because they think they know who he is. Verse 28, Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him. He sent me. If you've been at New Hope for any length of time, you're familiar with this Greek word I'm going to show you. The word is kradzo. And you've seen it associated with other people. It means to scream at the top of your lungs. So Jesus is in the courtyard of the temple, marble walls surrounding. He yells out as loud as he possibly can, and his voice echoes off the chambers. You think you know me? You don't know me? You can't possibly. You don't even know the Father whom you profess to know. That's where he's going with this. Look what he says, though, that I want you to circle in your Bible if you don't mind writing in it. I know him because I am from him. It's a declarative statement. You've ever had anyone challenge you, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, individuals who belong to any other world religion that, that will say, Jesus never said he was from God. You take him to that verse. That's really big among those who profess to be Muslims. They will say that Jesus was a prophet and that he was just a man born. He was not from God. But Jesus himself said, I am God. He's declaring equality with God. And church, if you can't accept that statement, you have to reject everything else about Jesus because your faith hinges on that. God alone sent his son to redeem us. Now, I find at Easter and at Christmas time, people are very polite and fond of Jesus. They say nice things about him. They talk friendly about him. But when you tell them about the hard things about Jesus, that's when the recoiling starts. Jesus leaves no gray ground whatsoever. You either accept him or you reject him. You either bow the knee to him now or you bow your knee to him in the future when he returns. According to the authority of Scripture, this is what we're told, Philippians 2.6. 
Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, most knees will bow, no. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen is right. Every knee will bow. Some will do it as, oh, I don't want to do this because we're learned as our study in Revelation. It'll be against the will of many, but they're going to recognize who he is. So we're left with only three reasonable explanations about who Jesus is, and John has laid out a very good case for us to step back into this study. Here's your three reasonable explanations. He's either a madman, or he's the world's greatest liar, the greatest deceiver that ever lived, or he is exactly who he said he is. Those are your only choices. I want to leave you this morning with a quote from C.S. Lewis because many people in your world think of Jesus as a good moral teacher but nothing more than that. Look with me on the screen at this quote from C.S. Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us come, not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So the people living at this time, they got it. Because they really, really want to kill him now. As a matter of fact, verse 30 says this, So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But I want you to notice this as you leave. But many of the crowd believed in him. You see the dichotomy? Same crowd same ears, hear the exact same words, and yet you've got this side of the crowd saying, no way, kill him. And you've got the other side of the crowd saying, we believe he really is who he says he is. Interesting mix there between what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of some people and what's not going on in the lives of others, but some are being drawn right into Jesus. So they ask a really important question, church. When the Christ comes... He will not perform more signs than those which this man has done, will he? Modern English, what else does Jesus have to do? What else does he have to do? It's logical to respond to Jesus. It's illogical to reject him. So let me ask you this. What have you done with that decision? Because what you believe about God determines what you do next. Got it? Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you that your truth can be declared with freedom here this morning. 
and that we do our best to declare it accurately to glorify the Son and to glorify you, Father. We ask that you would take these things that we've looked at this morning, these very hard truths, and we would ask, Father, that you make it so prevalent in our life that we would be bold to speak on your behalf. God, send us out now with your blessing for having been here, but also reminding us throughout this week that we're about to take on who's really in control. It's in his name that we pray, the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a chance tonight and you, or your schedule's free and you can swing back here at 6 o'clock, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is going to be speaking on the issues of creation and uh, angels and demons. And he's a lecturer, so know that you'd be coming into a lecture-type setting. Have a great week.